0: Welcome to another episode of the Spot On Podcast. In Season 1, we focused on the fundamentals of skin cancer and interviewed some of Australia's leading clinicians on the topic. In this season, Season 2, we're focusing more on the human side of a diagnosis. And for this season on the Spot On Podcast, MScan is thrilled to be joined by renowned journalist Deborah Knight, who will be interviewing patients alongside a key member of their treatment team. And in this episode today, you'll hear the story of Professor Alan Cooper, who was diagnosed with stage three melanoma. And despite multiple surgeries and two trials of experimental treatment, it progressed to stage four. The melanoma eventually responded to a combination of radiotherapy and immunotherapy. At the time of his diagnosis, Alan was actually clinical professor of dermatology at the Northern Clinical School of University of Sydney and the head of the Department of Dermatology at Royal North Shore Hospital. He's served in a number of capacities in the Australasian College of Dermatologists, and he's been involved in the training and assessment of medical students and dermatology advanced trainees. He's also supervised a research unit and was involved in fundraising for dermatology research through state, national and international foundations. Alan's also a director of MScan, who are bringing you this podcast series. So Alan knows this space from the clinician and research side, and now as a patient as well. In this conversation, you'll also hear from Professor Georgina Long, who is the Co-Medical Director of the Melanoma Institute of Australia, MIA, and Chair of Melanoma, Medical Oncology and Translational Research at MIA and Royal North Shore Hospital, the University of Sydney. Professor Long leads an extensive clinical trials team and laboratory at MIA with a focus on targeted therapies and immuno-oncology in melanoma. Professor Long is the author of over 370 peer-reviewed publications in clinical and translational research in melanoma. So here is the conversation that Deb Knight had with Professor Alan Cooper and Professor Georgina Long about Alan's experiences with melanoma.
1: I'm speaking today with Professor Alan Cooper and also Professor Georgina Long. So we've got a feast of knowledge here with us today from personal experience as well as professional experience in dealing with skin cancers. I want to start with you Alan and you've been through quite the journey diagnosed with stage 3 melanoma in 2013 and you've had multiple surgeries, trials of experimental treatments and it's still progressed further. Tell me a bit about I suppose, that first moment when the diagnosis came through?
2: Well, I noticed a small lump on my scalp, which was, it felt quite firm and it was smooth and it made me very nervous. So at the end of one of my hospital clinics, I had my registrar biopsy.
1: By
3: the way, Alan's a dermatologist.
1: Well, that's what I wanted to get into. I wanted to get into the fact that we're talking to you here from someone who has that professional but personal experience, and if anyone's going to notice a change, it's going to be a dermatologist, right? Except
3: it's on his scalp. Mm-hmm. Well, he can only feel it. He can't see it unless he bends his head. Sorry, Alan, I'm jumping in. Did, I did
2: diagnose it by touch, I thought. You did, right. <laughs> and anyway, my poor registrar was contacted with the pathology results, and she then had to call me and tell me what we'd found.
1: No pressure on the registrar, goodness me. Yeah,
2: I think it was very distressing for her.
1: Yeah. So what was the next step then? Did you go into professional mode or patient mode?
2: Uh, Oh, I guess a bit of both. The diagnosis came through on a Friday afternoon and I immediately telephoned a friend of mine who's a melanoma surgeon. He saw me on the Saturday and operated on the Monday, taking out the biopsy site and doing the sentinel node biopsies.
1: The fact that you live and breathe this every day and that you are often dealing with people at the other end of the table and you're the one dishing out the advice rather than having to deal with the advice all the time. But did you have a true understanding, I suppose, of what it means to have that diagnosis delivered?
2: I certainly did. I was very involved in managing melanoma, but the sort of melanoma dermatologists sees are commonly early And probably 95 to 98% of the melanomas I treated were cured by the initial excision. But I was very familiar with that uh, tiny percentage that required much more in depth treatment and monitoring and supervision.
1: And that's where you, Georgina, come in. Just tell me about your involvement in Alan's journey. So I'm a medical oncologist. In general,
3: there are three ways you treat melanoma one, with the knife. And that's generally either the surgeon or the dermatologist or sometimes GP. Number two, radiation, which is again, just like surgery. It's a local treatment to one area, that's ray beams. And then there's drugs. And a medical oncologist, which is my profession uh, as a medical professional, treats cancer with drug therapies. So I come in with the higher risk melanoma, that small percentage that Alan mentioned. So from a dermatologist or a GP's perspective, most of what they see is cured with surgery. They see a lot of melanoma at the very early stage, whereas the oncology surgeons, cancer surgeons who did that sentinel node biopsy and the wider excision for Allen and the drug doctors like me, the majority of what we see tends to be much higher risk disease. And that's where it gets tricky with melanoma. It becomes highly specialised and you require a multidisciplinary team. But even your scalp primary, it was one of those sort of sheep that's really a wolf, meaning it can really trick the pathologist doctor when they're looking under the microscope. It can look like a sheep, meaning and not a bad melanoma. 80% of melanomas are straightforward. The pathologist diagnoses, yep, this is melanoma, on you go. But melanoma is scary. It can spread and it can kill. And so what alan had was his primary removed and we don't do little bits little bits they do a wide incision you want to get the whole thing out and then they checked whether it went to the local lymph nodes and that's called the sentinel node biopsy that is a prognostic procedure meaning it's a procedure to tell us how risky is this melanoma what is the chance that this melanoma is going to come back really far and wide in the brain in the lung in the bones in the liver and so as alan was just saying there are four stages to melanoma stage one two and three are all early melanoma and the foundational treatment is surgery but as you go down stage one two and three your risk of becoming stage four which 15 years ago was almost universally fatal almost universally fatal So here's Alan with his primary melanoma, which was a bit of a sheep, but there was really a wolf, but had gone to the lymph nodes. That's stage three. That put him at high risk of the melanoma becoming stage four. And that's where I met him. I met him at that stage after the surgeons had removed the primary melanoma, done a wider excision, and then looked at the lymph nodes and found that there was melanoma there.
1: And the pathologist then, Alan, contacted you and delivered, as you say, that bad news and the process then for Georgina, I mean, you had the benefit of knowing all these people and knowing all these stages. And for the average patient, you know, it's frightening, as you say, but add that extra level of terror where you're not armed with the knowledge you've got.
2: Well, you could say that, but uh, when you do have the knowledge, it's pretty terrifying too.
1: That's true. You know, the facts and figures and the end result.
2: Yes. But at least
1: you had the ability to go directly to the experts and obviously the patients do as well, but it's through the guiding hand of experts such as yourself, but you knew where to go, I suppose. And so talk us through that next stage in your journey.
2: Well, as it became clear that it was stage three, I was introduced to Georgina as a patient pretty quickly. It was monitored and then I started getting local recurrences which were removed again. I had a series of general anaesthetics to remove local recurrences on the scalp. And then I was entered into a clinical trial that Georgina was running. And that was a 12-month trial, which I had to leave the trial after 11 months because it had spread to my lungs. My suspicion is that it would have spread a lot more quickly if you hadn't been on the trial. But I then was on another trial, which unfortunately didn't help me at all and then finally it became extremely extensive and as well as having both ipilimumab and nivolumab which were still at a trial stage i also had to have uh, radiation therapy
1: i guess in layman's terms you chucked everything at it
2: absolutely everything and it worked
1: And, and it worked yeah and what's the prognosis where are you today
2: Well, in terms of melanoma, Georgina follows me very closely with regular scans, and there's been no sign of the melanoma since uh, probably six months after the scan taken six months after starting treatment was clear, and every scan since then has been clear. So that's middle of 17, so maybe three and a half years clear so far.
1: Which is wonderful news. And Georgina, the research that you're involved in, the clinical trials, obviously it's the next phase of medicine and work in this sphere. But tell me a bit about those. Well, clinical trials are
3: a must for cancer. Until cancer is cured, clinical trials are our only way forward. And so at Melanoma Institute, that is our goal, is to always improve, 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 improve. And great news, a proportion of patients, through all the great work we've been doing at MIA and around the world, we've made a huge impact. What was universally fatal... When I say universally, I think if you had stage four melanoma fifteen years ago, by one year, 75% of those patients had died. And by five years, 95% of those patients had died. So start it, start statistics. It, it was one of those orphan cancers you did not want to get much like pancreatic cancer is today. And we've changed that. Now we think we are, and as a medical oncologist, we don't like using the word cure in cancer once you've had stage four, but we do think we might be curing 50% of patients, and that's where Alan fits into. He's now four years, yeah? Four years. Yeah,
2: four years, yeah.
3: So we know that about 95% of patients who have the sort of response that Alan had do well long-term. They haven't recurred yet yet. So, we've made a huge dent, but that's still only half the patients with stage four. Mm. So, clinical trials are our only way forward. These drugs and all these treatments are expensive, they come out of our taxpayers' money. We want evidence that they work. And if people are going to suffer through treatments and suffer with side effects, I want to know that they're going to do something for patients. And the only way to do that is in a scientific way and doing clinical trials. So that's what we do. At the time when I met Alan um, and was following him very closely, we were doing trials in immunotherapy at stage three. And that's called mop-up treatment. We now use that routinely. So if someone has stage three melanoma, where the surgeon's removed everything, but we know it's gone to the nearby lymph nodes, they're called loco regional lymph nodes, near the primary, we then give 12 months of treatment to mop up any stray melanoma cancer cell that might be in the body that we can't see on scans because the scans are clear. So Alan was part of that trial that has meant that Australians have access to this immunotherapy now as a matter of course. It's not Mm. a trial anymore. And it's people like Alan who participate in these clinical trials that help us generate the knowledge to make this standard. And so now it is a standard treatment for stage three, but we've got more work to do, much more work to do for particularly the 30% of stage four patients where none of these modern drugs we now use work at all.
1: So it's a as you say, but in a country like Australia where we know that the skin cancer rates are as high as they are and figures on the impacts on individuals, it's such crucial work. And Alan, your work now extends to being director of MScan2. You're a patient consumer advocate. Obviously, your own experience and expertise has driven you to push further in this space.
2: Yes, I was asked to help give advice to mscan and I did I was doing that for a while and eventually they asked me to come on the board and I figured I've got a bit of spare time these days and uh, something to offer so I readily accepted and uh, quite enjoying it.
1: And are you finding that there needs to be a lot of activity and advocacy to push for research dollars and to push for government funding or is the I mean obviously you can always have more but do you find that In Australia, as we say, because of the rates being that they are, that we have a full grasp of why the work that's being done is so important?
2: Yes. Over the years in my work as a dermatologist, I became very conscious of the value of patient advocacy groups. There's all different levels of what they can do. Raising funds for researchers, one, and MScan hasn't really moved into that yet. Providing educational resources for patients from a patient's perspective I think is incredibly valuable. And we're doing a lot of that. And that's what this podcast is all about. But certainly MScan is involved in responding to government in particular about the needs of patients with skin cancers, both melanoma and other forms of skin cancer.
1: And do you think, Georgina, that there was something that Alan has done as a young man, or even as a child that put him at a, greater risk than others? Because I'll ask you that, Alan, too, in a moment. But I suppose that's the perennial question, isn't it? It's like, how did I get this damn thing in the first place?
3: This is a really important question because this can hamper advocacy, this sort of blame idea to a cancer patient. And I don't agree with it because the truth is the mistake Alan made is being from Northern European genetically and growing up in this country with this wonderful sunshine and doing what we all do. And that's not his or anybody's fault. Simply living in this country and growing up. Alan, what decade were you sort of a primary school kid, if I may ask?
2: (laughs) Well, I was, uh, remember I was born in Darwin and grew up in the Northern Territory, a little closer to the sun than people in the Southern States. And that was in the early fifties.
3: So little boy in the early fifties. And during the 60s, getting a bit older, sun exposure, he had no control over that. It's this climate and he's a Northern European. I mean, he's at risk. The fairer you are, the more risk you are. But having said that, you can be dark and get melanoma. Although we ask those questions about tanning ability, people can tan well and still get melanoma, uh, which is why Melanoma Institute Australia, we have our game on mole every year. We have our Melanoma March, raising research dollars and our advocate this year has herself tans very well. She got a melanoma in her 20s. So, Game on Mole is about knowing your skin you're in. That's the best thing you can do. And making sure our young people know about that. But yeah, Alan or anyone with melanoma or has had melanoma, it's part of growing up in this country and living in this climate. And the best thing we can do is know our own skin and protect. Now, we know a lot more now
1: than we did in the 50s and 60s, that's for sure. Right, Alan?
2: Yep, we certainly do.
1: (laughs) And were you that blonde kid running around out in the sun enjoying the outdoors?
2: I did quite a bit of that growing up in Darwin, yes.
1: So, Alan, with you being a patient, how did you go about dealing with that? Because obviously you've got to work very closely with your clinician and, and you have to have a lot of trust in the person you're dealing with.
2: Yes, in some regards or in many regards, I think having been a doctor for many decades, gave me the guidance of how to be a patient. I found over the years that that patients who listened carefully and followed advice tended to do well. So I basically listened carefully, followed advice, and um, I think I've done well.
1: And was he a good boy, Georgina? Would you
3: concur? Look, it's been an absolute pleasure and a delight to look after Alan. It's been hairy at times when things have grown. It's been very upsetting. I'm human too, so watching on human suffering is difficult. But um, I have to say, Alan has been wonderful. I follow the same thing, Alan, and that is my own experience as a doctor is the patients that discuss, ask the right questions and come up as a team with the plan do very well. So Alan was fantastic, did follow our advice, is incredibly respectful, despite him being a medical person and a professor himself. And it's about trusting. The relationship's all built on trust, transparency and honesty. And sometimes people find it hard to have those honest discussions as a doctor. But that's what it's about and trusting the team because doing good things in cancer is not one person at a time. It is a team effort. And I've got a fabulous team that I work with that make sure people are looked after every day of the year.
2: One bit of advice that I'd like to throw in is it is so important to understand what's going on. I always found patients who wrote all their questions down and brought them into the consultation were able to be much better, have it explained in a much more effective way. Because I find myself that if I don't write it down, I'll get home and think, oh, damn, I forgot to ask Georgina something or other. So any patient listening to this, I would encourage you before every consultation, think of every question you have and write it down. It's well, good advice.
3: Sure is. It does make it easier. And also it's the team effort both together with the plan and a patient who understands why we're discussing what we're discussing in terms of management. Handles the stresses. It is a roller coaster ride and it's stressful and they handle that Mm. much better.
1: Well, I think your work in this space is all credit to you. It's shining a very important spotlight on an issue that we know isn't going away. And you both bring enormous expertise from a patient and professional side of the ledger. So it's great to get your insights on it today. Professors, thank you for joining me. It's
0: been a pleasure. Thank you, Deb. And that's it for another episode of the Spot On Podcast. Make sure you share this episode with a friend or family member if you think it would be of value. If you haven't done so already, go back and listen to some of the episodes in Season 1 about the fundamentals of skin cancer or check out some of the other episodes in this season where we focus more on the human side of a skin cancer diagnosis. Remember that all of the content that's discussed in this podcast is for information purposes only and should not be considered as medical advice. Please make sure you speak with a medical professional for advice relating to your own specific situation. This podcast is brought to you by the Melanoma and Skin Cancer Advocacy Network, MSCAN, who are providing a new, innovative approach to tackle Australia's national cancer. MSCAN engages with Australia's leading clinicians, researchers and advocates with the aim of increasing the knowledge of those affected by a diagnosis. For more information about MScan and the advocacy work going on to help Australians get skin serious, visit mscan.org.au.